Years and years ago, when Stuart used to travel a lot, I got involved working with young people, and a whole lot of young people came to Christ, and the little Methodist churches where we lived didn't have any preachers at that time. Stuart always says that's because they didn't have any people. <laughs> anyway, they did need people to go and talk on a Sunday, even if there were a few people sitting in the pews. And so we organized these young people into little teams, and then the question was, what do we do when we get to the church? Well, Stuart wasn't home too much, but when he was, I'd sit on the front row and I'd copy down assiduously everything he said. And there was one particular sermon I liked very much. It was about Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. Lazarus was defeated, tied round and round with the grave clothes. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. And then Lazarus was dangerous because people began to believe in Jesus because of him and all the rest of it. It was a super sermon. And I decided if Stuart was going to be in America for nine months of the year, then somebody ought to preach that sermon around Britain. And so I thought I'd do that. So the little team and I would go around these little churches. And one day Stuart came home and he took off to a big church in Manchester. And as he went out the door, I was busy with the three children under school age and I, I didn't quite know where he was going. And he threw back over his shoulder, oh, I'm going to that big Methodist church down in Manchester. See you tonight. And off he went. And as the car drew out of the driveway... I just went cold all over, and I thought, oh, no, Lazarus. <laughs> and then I started to pray very fervently, Lord, blot it out of his mind. Just let him forget he ever had a sermon called Lazarus <laughs> or something. It was a miserable day, and at the end of it, he walked back in, and I took one look at his face, and I said, Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus. And he said, Jill, at the end of my sermon, this woman came barreling up to me and said, Oh, you stole your wife's sermon. <laughs> so then he suggested I went and found one of my own. And I remember saying, but I can't do that. I'm not creative. I'm not original. I don't know how to use the tools of the Bible. I can't find a, a message or a story that would help people. And he showed me how to do that. He taught me how to look at the scriptures and be able to find the people in there and make something meaningful out of it. And so I went back to that sermon on Lazarus and I peeked around the corner of the verse, which is what we must do if we're going to see the color and find who's standing in the shadows. And I found a lady standing there called Mary, Mary of Bethany. And I began to go around with my little team of people and instead of preaching Stuart's sermon, I began to talk about a woman who became my friend. And I would like to share her story with you today. You'll find her in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And we'll read a few verses together. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is best, and it will not be taken away from her. What was it that Jesus was so appreciative of her about this woman? I want to find that out, because I would like to think that he would say those sort of things about me. 
Now, in John's Gospel 11, verse 5, it says this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He loved them. And nowhere else in the Bible do you find this, that Jesus specifically is said to have loved somebody. This is an intriguing thing. And as I looked at this lady and tried to get to know her and peeked around the corner of the verse and tried to find out, well, why did he love her? What was it that made her so very lovable to Christ? Did she die as a martyr on the mission field? Or did she give her life for Christ? What was it that he loved about her? Well, there were many, many things, but basically four things I want to talk about. And the first was quite simply that she had given her heart to Christ. I don't know where she first found him. We're not told that in the Bible. Did she see him opening the eyes of a blind man? Did she see a leper cleansed? Did she see him raise the dead before he ever raised her brother Lazarus? We don't know. I don't know where she first saw him. But I do know that she met him after hearing of him by the hearing of the ear. Her eye saw him, and she was lost. And she loved him, and she gave her heart to Christ. We talk a lot about giving our heart to Christ. What did it mean to Mary? Well, she as a Hebrew believed that the heart was the absolutely deepest part of us, the part where all the emotions and the personality and the deepest decisions are made. That's the part that God has given us that makes us different from just animals. We're not just little dust people living in dust bodies, eating dust food, driving in dust cars, singing from dust hymn books. God dignified dust with divinity. He borrowed a dust body and he lived within it for 30 years. God in Galilean cloth, making our hearts smile, if you like. God became a baby and he borrowed a body. Mary knew that we were more than dust, that there was a heart, a soul, the deepest part of us that needed to be given to God, the part of us that matters more than anything else. The problem, of course, is that we're supposed to love God as Mary loved him. We're supposed to give our hearts to Christ, if you want to use that phrase. But we have heart trouble. We are born with heart trouble. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And he sees the heart of man is only evil continually. In fact, Jesus said, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lies, and slander. How then can we love God with hearts like that? Are not our churches full of people trying to do it? How frustrating. How can we love God with a heart that is desperately wicked above all things? Well, maybe we need a bypass. Maybe that'll do it. God actually says it won't. And in Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, Listen, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And he talked about a great transaction that needed to take place, which would need a great position. We need a transplant if we're ever going to give our hearts to Jesus, if we're ever going to love him as Mary loved him. But the problem with a transplant is you need a donor. I remember standing in this church listening to a young man from Ghana thank the congregation for their part in bringing him here with his brother that a kidney transplant might be effective. And I remember thinking, how wonderful, but surely if somebody that I loved needed an organ or needed 
a bone marrow or whatever transplant, then I would surely be willing to do that. And then I thought again, but what about a heart? Would I give my heart? Would you? Have you ever heard of anyone alive offering their heart to someone that has heart trouble? I never have except one. Jesus Christ said to his father, the great physician, is my heart. Take it. And on an operating table, the shape of a cross, God did and offered the heart of Christ to the world. Because without his heart, we cannot love him properly. These old hearts of ours are not going to love him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. So we can become partakers of the divine nature and we can become with all the valves open to know what it is to truly love him. God has to even lend us beggars the love to love him with. We have to ask him for that, for his nature. We can be partakers of that divine nature. We can give our hearts to Christ and he can give his heart to us. I did that years and years ago and I would ask you, have you given your heart Jesus. That's the first thing Mary did. The second thing she did was give her home to Jesus. Now, this was going to entitle a lot of work. When you think about it, it wasn't just Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha running around in the background getting a meal for three. No, no. There were 12 disciples with him. There were certainly eight or nine women, we learn in Luke's gospel, there were prominent women like Mary and Martha that traveled around with him and helped him and provided means that he might do his ministry. So there were women, there were the disciples, there were a couple of healed lepers, I'm sure. There were a couple of demoniacs that hadn't been healed yet, I'm sure of that. There were the hangers-on. Probably she was preparing a meal for 30 or 40 people, maybe more. And in the middle of this, just at mealtime, we have this incredible story of Jesus expecting Martha and Mary to sit at his feet while he explained something terribly important to them. I believe that this was possibly the last opportunity he had to explain the cross. And Martha, she was worried about the soup. And she warranted a rebuke. It was not Martha's activity that Jesus rebuked, but her anxiety over the activity. For we read that she was distracted by her much serving. And I know what it's like to be a Christian mom and give my home to Jesus and have it filled with all his friends. And he has some weird friends, I can tell you that. <laughs> to bring into our home all that he would, not all that I would perhaps, but all that he would. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of physical work, it takes a lot of planning. And of course, in Martha's day and age, she had to go and get the water from the well, and she had to go and find the servants to get the fire going, and she had to knead the dough for 30 people. And she wasn't just making toast and tea. She was, as the scripture tells us, providing a seven-course meal because she was Martha. And she just got worried about it. She was a worker, she was worried, and that became very destructive and disruptive. Her relationships got in the way. Don't you care, Lord, that she, that's Mary she's talking about, her sister, has left me to serve alone? Don't you care, Lord? 
It disrupted her relationship with Christ. It disrupted her relationship with her sister. And I'm sure it disrupted her relationship with herself. She got mad with herself as well as mad with everybody else. You can be distracted by the very service you're rendering to Christ. I've discovered that. I'm a Martha. I am not a Mary. And all my life, I've had to make the Mary choice. And you know something? I don't believe that Mary was a Mary either. We don't know whether she was this mystical, quiet, passive, unworking mother who loved to pray. We presume, because she's sitting at his feet, she liked to be there. But how do you know she liked to be there? How do you know she wasn't a Martha? Somebody has said in a commentary, I think it was Spurgeon, Mary was Martha before she was Mary. Mary was Martha before she was Mary. And perhaps she was. The difference between her and Martha was that she made a choice. She made a choice. Jesus said she's chosen the better part or the best dish. She's chosen the best dish. In fact, he uses playful words to soften his rebuke. Martha, Martha, it's a diminutive, it's a love way of addressing this woman. I appreciate all the trouble you're going to, Martha, innocently said. Mary has brought me the food I like best. Her heart and her sympathy, she's nourishing, she's refreshing my spirit. This one dish I would wish for you to bring, not the many courses. Martha, Martha, we don't need seven courses, we need one dish. Mary's chosen the best dish. It's a play on words that you lose in the English translation. Mary has chosen that good part. And so perhaps all of us, whether we be Mary by temperament or whether we all be Martha's as perhaps Mary was, and certainly Martha was, we need to make a choice. Or we can be distracted with our housework, with our mothering, with our church service, with our business, distracted by much serving, by all the preparations that had to be made. And distracted, we become agitated and we become frustrated and our relationships suffer. We have to give our home to Jesus in more ways than one. But as he begins to use our lives, as mothers at home or as mothers in the workforce and at home, and as fathers in the workplace and as fathers everywhere else, we have to remember that we must not become distracted with our much serving. Then it will be noised abroad that Jesus is in the house. We can give our house to Jesus because in the midst of it, we learn to be merry. At mealtime, we learn to be merry. We are relaxed. We are at rest in the middle of the activity. The two things have to go together. I remember our wedding verse. It was this. It was noised abroad that Jesus was in the house. It comes from Mark's gospel. When the fellows were taking the roof to pieces to get at Christ because they knew he was there. And I remember saying to Stuart, I want a home like that. I want a home where people talk about the fact that not Stuart and Jill live in that house, not David and Judy and Peter, but Jesus is in the house. And I wanted to be noised abroad for people to talk about it, so much so that the whole town gathers at the door. God heard my heart prayer, and he gave us a home like that, that the world literally has tramped through. That's a lot of hard work, and I loved it, and I have loved it every moment of our lives of service and ministry. Jesus has indeed brought his friends to our house. But I also know what it's like to be distracted 
by the very serving that I love. And to have to make a choice, to sit at his feet and to listen to his word. Martha ticked and kept time. I love that little phrase. Do you tick and keep time? Are you one of those sort of people? Can people actually hear you as you walk past going tick, 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 tick? Because you are so scheduled and you've got everything in little boxes and it's all tied up. And that's fine as long as you are sitting at his feet and you are not distracted by the very tick of the clock, the control that you have allowed to come into your life. Martha ticked and kept time. Mary made time to run around the corner without her. She had to linger to meet someone she loved. Her heart lay open to his presence as a flower to the dew, as the grass to the rain. Martha loved him no less, but allowed herself to be distracted by all the things that had to be done. One thing is needful. Only one thing. Everything else is wonderful in your life, but one thing is needful. Somewhere along the way, you got distracted from Jesus. By what? All the work you really felt had to be done before choosing the best part. I remember coming to this part in the scriptures and knowing myself a Martha, asking God to make me a Mary, and giving him my willing cooperation, which is what it takes, and writing this. I'm not a not, Lord. No, I'm not. Well, not at the moment. Keep me untied, Lord. Straighten me out. Get hold of the frayed edges. Hold them securely in place. Help me lay still in your hands while you tease out the tightness. Tied in tight against myself, twisted over in knots of knotness. I'm no good to you or to me or to the people that I love. Help me, Lord, not to be a knot. And he will. And he does. And when in all my Martha-ness I come to him, and I kneel at his feet, and I look in his face, oh, I say, where have I been? What's more than that, I hear him say, where have you been? Where have you been, Joe? I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you. It takes a bit of humility to sit there. As she sat, a penitent acknowledging her unworthiness, a disciple confessing her ignorance, a receiver admitting her emptiness. But she sat there long enough to get hold of the fact that Jesus Christ had something very important to tell her. Have you given your heart to Christ? Have you given your home to him yet? Are you that far? Thirdly, she gave her hurts to Jesus, her hurts. It was an amazing thing, but Lazarus, the beloved brother, fell sick. And it was very obvious, unless Jesus came and healed him, the doctors could do no more and he was going to die. So the sisters in John chapter 11 sent a message. And they sent a message saying, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. They did not send a message saying, Lord, he whom lovest thou is sick. Now here it is again. Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Lazarus. He whom thou lovest is sick. That would do it. After all, Jesus had made no secret of his love for the three. He would come running. He would make sure he, he got there in time to save their brother. He had healed others. Surely he would heal the one that he loved. But Jesus' hearing stayed where he was in the same place for three days. And Lazarus died. I saw a child once. I was sitting on a train. And the little kid was running around, 
It was nice because train travel, you can do that. It's very hard to take children in a car, isn't it? They start as soon as you get in the car. Are we nearly there, Mom? Are we nearly there, Dad? You have to say, no, we haven't started yet. This little child was in a train, and so they were running up and down, and they would go to one person and another, and I thought, this child is wonderfully sociable. I wonder who she belongs to, and I started to look around trying to find the parents, and I couldn't tell, because the child would first of all clamber up beside one passenger and then take a little book that they had in their hand and run to another passenger and then talk to another, and I thought, I wonder who the parents are. Suddenly there was a whistle, and the train entered the dark tunnel. Then I could tell who was the mother. The child made a beeline for the mother, for the tunnel was dark. She was frightened. And you can tell who belongs to Christ. The one, when trouble comes, heads straight for him. And the sisters and Mary, they headed straight for Christ. But they were puzzled because he didn't come. And Lazarus died. And when eventually he did turn up, both the sisters ran and knelt down, their body language saying, you are our Lord, but their heart saying, why didn't you come? And their mouths, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. Why didn't you come? Why? They were hurt. They'd given their heart to Jesus, they'd given their homes to Jesus, but they'd never given their hurts to Jesus. And maybe that's where you are. You've given your heart, you've given your service, you've given your home but you've never given your hurts to him. And your body language says all the right things. You come to church, you sit in place, you sing the hymns, you do the service, you teach the Sunday school class, you sing in the choir. But inside, there's one great big why. And even though the outside of you kneels, the inside of you is standing straight up saying, why didn't you come? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you answer my prayers? You know what has to happen? You have to do what she did, what Mary did. You have to give your hurts to Jesus. As Ruth Graham's beautiful poem says, I lay my whys before your cross in worship kneeling, my mind too full with thoughts, my heart beyond all feeling. And worshiping realize that I, in knowing you, don't need a why. Keep my whys, take my whys, take my whys and take my whens. Take all of it. I give my hurts to you. When she did that, she learned the greater thing. Jesus said, Mary, I could have come and healed your brother. Then you would have known I was the great healer. But because I didn't come, because you've got a prayer that didn't get answered, now you know that I am the resurrection and the life. And you see, it's when the hurts come into our lives and we're able to give them to him and let him do with our hurts what he would do with them that we learn the greater thing, not the lesser thing, but the greater thing. And lastly, she gave her hopes to Jesus. She gave her heart to Jesus, her home to Jesus, her hurts to Jesus, and her hopes to Jesus. It was in the home of Simon the leper in John chapter 12, not in Martha and Mary's home, that the incident happened that Jesus talked about and said should be talked about forever and ever as long as the Gospels preached. I wondered why Jesus wasn't in their home, perhaps because by now he was a wanted man. It was Passover time. Not only was Jesus wanted, Lazarus was wanted too. 
And perhaps out of concern for Martha and Mary, Jesus did not want to put her in obvious danger. Two wanted men in one house, that was a bit much for the authorities. They wanted to put Lazarus to death because people were believing in Jesus because he'd been dead and Jesus had brought him back from the dead. Poor old Lazarus, he died once, now he was going to die again. That was a bummer for him. (laughs) Had to go through it all again, this time being murdered. So here was Jesus having been raised from the dead in the house of Simon the leper, who had been healed by Jesus, a leper healed, a raised man, sitting at the same table. I wonder what talk was like that night. And Jesus too. Wonderful feast. And it says that Martha served. There she is again. That was her epitaph. Every time you find her, she's serving. This time, no rebuke. This time, she had chosen the better part. This time in the middle of all the activity, her heart was nestled in the heart of God. She was relaxed. She was at home. She was being a Mary inside as she was a Martha outside. She was resting in Christ in the midst of all the activity. And that's what the Christian life is all about. It's like a needle in a sewing machine. And when the needle begins to go, it's going so fast you cannot even see it move. But it's resting in the arm and the power is moving through the machine and getting the work done. Martha served. I know that's what they put on her tombstone. Have you ever wondered what they're going to put on yours? I've often wondered what they're going to put on mine. I know what they'll put on Stuart's. He didn't anticipate any major difficulty. my husband. I've lived my life anticipating every major difficulty, and he's lived his life not anticipating every major difficulty. What are they going to put on yours? What would they put on Martha's? Martha served. And it was in this context that Mary came and brought her little box of ointment. While Lazarus was among them, Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. You see, she'd sat there long enough to understand that Jesus was trying to tell her something, that he was going to go to the cross, and on the cross, his little alabaster box of ointment, very precious, his heart was going to be broken. And the aroma of that ointment, the sacrifice that God would accept, the beautiful sacrifice of a life, a perfect life given, would mean that the world could be anointed with the blessing of it. No wonder she ran upstairs and found her own little box of ointment. Very precious. Would have cost a small fortune. Brought it down. Unbraided her hair. Anointed the feet of Jesus. And wiped them with her hair. Only two sorts of women did that. A wife in her bedroom or a prostitute. You never unbraided your hair in public. Mary did. It was an expression of uncalculated love. When I came to that part preparing this talk, I thought, well, When was the last time, Jill Briscoe, that you unbraided your hair for Jesus? When was the last time 
You gave him, your savior, a gift of uncalculated love. When was the last time I opened my purse and put it all in the offering? When was the last time I went beyond myself? When was the last time I showed him I loved him? I had to think a little bit. When was the last time I let down my hair for Jesus? When was the last time you did that? Or have you become so calculated in your love? It's all a little tied up. This is what you do on a Monday. This is what you do on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And this is how much you give in the offering. It's all so calculated. And your little box has never been given. Well, Mary gave it. And the aroma of the ointment filled the house. And this speaks of the filling of the spirit. The fragrance filling the house so that others are affected. In fact, the Bible talks about, through us, the knowledge of him, the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of life is spread abroad. But the fragrance of Christ will never be spread abroad through the people that worship in this church unless the little box is given. And that means a brokenness of heart and spirit. Maybe we haven't looked after our hearts very much. We've been distracted by our much serving and that wonderful gift of the heart of Christ has become stony and hard in us again. And we need to sit at his feet. We need to look in his face. And we need to say, Jesus, forgive me. We need to look at the cross and be reduced by it. And we need to bring our little box and break it. Then the things we do will be told all over the world. No question about it, Jesus said. Then the things we do will be of eternal value. And then all the Christians that haven't given their little box, like the disciples in this case, who hostily and angrily said, why wasn't this given to the poor? Not just Judas, all the disciples, it says in another gospel passage, got after Mary and Jesus came to her rescue. And he said, leave her alone. She's done what she could. Not what she couldn't, what she could. She found something she could do for me. She's anointed my body for burial. She understands what's going to happen. You guys don't, but she does. She's the only one that understands. Leave her alone. Wherever the Gospels preach, this shall be told to this woman. And that's where we've got to get to. If we do not care that our lives are given in such a way, that wherever the Gospel is preached, what we have done for service for him is going to be repeated. In other words, we're going to do something of eternal significance. If we don't care about that, then it will never be done. It will never be spoken about. And so what is the little box? I know what mine was. It was my marriage box. I had to give my marriage box to him. And then it was another box, and then it was another box, and then it was another box. And suddenly I found I had a whole attic full of boxes I didn't know I had. And at different times in your life, it will be something else that is not broken, that is not given. What is it? Will you give your heart to Jesus? Your home to Jesus? Your hurts to Jesus? Your hopes to Jesus? Will you give it all to Jesus? If you will, 
The fragrance of the ointment will fill the house, and the world will know about him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this woman who stands in the shadows who you called in front of men and women, who didn't care who was watching, who didn't care what people would say. She broke her little box over your feet, and she wiped your feet with her hair. We bow before you. And some of us are guilty of many things. And some of us are only guilty of one, the one needful thing. You have rebuked us today. We would ask you to forgive us. And we would dare to ask you to break our hearts anew with the sight of the cross and that you would fill our lives with the fragrance of the Spirit of God that our world might know of you. We ask it for your sake.